Hello, my dear friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Volby coming to you live from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. This is the Ethics Podcast. And before we begin, I want to remind the audience that the Ethics Podcast is only one of six podcasts that I am fortunate enough to host. So if you enjoy the Ethics Podcast, there is a very good chance that you will enjoy some of my other content. Maybe give it a listen, sample it, the Parsha Podcast. Jewish History Podcast, Torah 101, This Jewish Life, The Mitzvah Podcast. Just go to wherever you listen to podcasts, put in my last name, Wolby, and give it a listen. Five stars, as always. I appreciate your friendship and your support. We are up to Chapter 5, Mishnah number 7. Asara Nisim Nasu Lavosenu Pebesamitash. There were 10 miracles performed for our ancestors in the Holy Temple. This is a delightful Mishnah. And I'm really excited to share it with y'all. Number one, Lohipila Isha Mirech Kodesh. Never did a woman miscarry because of the aroma of the meat of sacrifices. Number one. Number two, Velohisriach Basara Kodesh Me'olam. Nor did the meat become putrid of the sacrifices ever. So no sacrificial meat ever became putrid and spoiled. That's number two. The second miracle that was performed for our ancestors in the temple. Number three, There was never a fly seen in the place where the meat was butchered. Number four, And never did the Kohen Gadol, did the high priest on Yom Kippur, did he experience a seminal omission that would have invalidated him from doing the service on Yom Kippur. That's number four. Number five, The rains did not extinguish the fires on top of the altar. And never did the wind disperse the column of smoke from the altar. And there was never a disqualification found, not in the Omer, which is brought on the second day of Pesach, not in the Shteyalechem, which is brought on Shavuos, and not the Lechem upon him that's brought on a weekly basis. People would stand together, crowded up. It was such a packed place when all of Israel would come. It was very packed. But when they bowed down before God, there was plenty of room for everyone. That was a miracle. Even though when they were standing, everyone was just, it was just body to body. When they bowed down and they, and they confessed to God, that miraculously provided space for everyone. Number nine, there was never an injury caused by a serpent or a scorpion in Jerusalem forever. And finally, and never did a person tell his friend, there's insufficient space for me to stay overnight in Jerusalem. No matter how many people came to Jerusalem, there's always room for another person. There's always another couch to crash on. There's always another bed. There's always place for more people in Jerusalem. So this is a beautiful Mishnah. It's a little bit mysterious because we don't see really a connection between all these 10 miracles. And we don't see what exactly the lesson is for us. So let us dig in as we always do. So first of all, it's important to note, our chapter has been, so far at least, all about the number 10, 10 utterances, 10 miracles, etc. And this is another list of 10, 10 miracles that were ever present in the temple for our antecedents. What I want to do is to go through them one by one to understand what they are individually, and then to zoom out and understand what the message perhaps of this Mishnah is holistically, and what are the lessons that we can glean. Okay, so the first of these miracles 
was the fact that never did a woman miscarry because of the aroma of the meat of sacrifices. One of the things that did in the temple was they had sacrifices. And, of course, there's all kinds of different sacrifices, and each one of them has a different protocol of what must be done with the animal after it's sacrificed. Sometimes it's barbecued for the Kohen, sometimes it's barbecued for the owner, a portion of it is put on the altar, sometimes all of it's put on the altar, but regardless, there's a lot of barbecuing meat in the temple environs. And you would imagine if there's a pregnant woman who are known to have cravings and she walks into the temple and she smells the succulent meat that's being grilled on top of the altar. And the problem is, is that she is not allowed to have any of it. When the the meat has to go on top of the altar, it's for the altar and it's not for any person. And even if the pregnant woman really, really craves it, she cannot have it. And the Talmud understands, and the Mishnah obviously understands, that if a woman has a craving, it's very important, when she's pregnant, that is, it's very important that the craving is fulfilled. Because the way it's understood is that there's a child within her, and the child is manipulating her hormones, and that creates a certain need, and sometimes if the need is not met, the child, God forbid, will suffer, and she could potentially suffer a miscarriage. That's why it's very important If a woman's pregnant and she wants ice cream, you get up and you go to 7-Eleven or you go to the 24-hour gas station and you buy her pickles and you buy her ice cream, whatever she needs because she's pregnant. And according to the Torah, a pregnant woman has needs and if they're not met, it could be disastrous. So, for example, the Mishnah in the book of Yoma tells us that on Yom Kippur, of course, we must fast. Who must fast? Everyone must fast. Unless you're very sick, of course, unless if there's a woman who just recently had a baby, then she would not fast. But under normal circumstances, everyone fasts. Well, what if there's a pregnant woman who's fasting and she has a craving? What do we do then? So the Mishnah tells us that if she has a craving, we consider this tantamount to a life-threatening situation and we give her to eat on Yom Kippur. So even though the mitzvah of fasting Yom Kippur is a very important mitzvah. And the Torah says, if you don't do that, you're cut off from the Jewish people, very severe. Nevertheless, there are exceptions for pregnant women. And my grandfather, blessed memory, used to tell over the story featured in the Talmud regarding pregnant women on Yom Kippur. The Talmud brings two stories side by side about pregnant women who had a craving on Yom Kippur? And they want to eat on Yom Kippur? What do we do? So the first instance, they went to Rabbi Judah the Prince. And they asked him, we have this pregnant woman, and she has a craving, and it's Yom Kippur. What do we do? Do we tell her to eat or something else? So he, he responds with the following instruction. Very interesting. He tells them, go to the pregnant woman and whisper into her ear that today is Yom Kippur. Now, of course, the woman knows that, but the message is intended not for the mom, but for the baby, the child, the embryo, the zygote, the fetus in utero. That's the message. Whisper to the baby that it is Yom Kippur. So they follow the instruction. Judah the prince says to do, that's what you do. They go to the woman and they whisper into her ear, today is Yom Kippur. And instantly, 
the child ceases to have the cravings, and the mother is totally fine. And they go back to Rabbi Judah the Prince, and Rabbi Judah the Prince says, this child will grow up to be a very righteous person. And indeed, that child became Rabbi Yochanan, the first of the Amorite and one of the greatest of the Amorite era, the leader of the Jews in Israel in the third century of the Common Era, the first era after the writing of the Mishnah. The Talmud brings a second story where the same thing happened. There's a pregnant woman and she has a craving and they go and whisper into her ear that today is Yom Kippur and the child persists and the child insists on getting the food and they have to feed the mother to quiet the craving of the child. And they go back to the rabbi and says, this kid's going to be problems. He's going to be problems. And indeed, this child grew up to be Shaptai, the hoarder of fruits. He was someone who, when there was a famine, he cornered the market of fruits to artificially jack up the prices to make money at other people's expense. So this is an idea that we see in the Talmud, a pregnant woman, we have exceptions, Shikidiyam Kippur, and we have these very interesting stories, which, as an aside, raise very interesting philosophical questions, because the Talmud tells us that only at birth does a child get a Yetzirah, does a child get evil inclination. Before birth, the child is not subject to an evil inclination. And therefore, the raises the question, how do we have these two children, these two boys, before they're born, one of them is opting for a holy path, so to speak, to submit himself and say, I'm going to quiet and quell these cravings, whereas you have the other one who seems to have this passion for sin that's manifest even before birth, even before the introduction of the Yitzhahara, which, by the way, is the same question that we must ask and ponder with respect to Jacob and his brother Esau in the book of Genesis, Rashi tells us that the mom, Rebecca, whenever she passed a house of scholarship, Jacob made a move to go and be born. And when she passed the house of idol worship, Esau began to stir and try to be born. And the question is, how can Esau stir and be born or want to be born if he doesn't have a Yitzhah before birth? So that's an idea. Pregnant women, we treat them differently. However, there are no exceptions to sacrificial food. And yet, despite the fact that you would imagine this happened millions of times over the course of the 800 plus years that the temple was extant, never once did a pregnant woman have some sort of ill effect or a miscarriage because of craving of the forbidden sacrificial meat. That is miracle number one. Miracle number two is that the sacrificial meat never became wormy, never spoiled, and never became putrid, even though certain sacrifices have a pretty long time before you must consume it. Meaning, every sacrifice that is consumable by humans, is not consumable indefinitely. There's a certain period, a certain duration of time that you're allowed to eat it. Afterwards, you can no longer eat it. You have to burn it. It's called leftovers. 
So, for example, you have the kachim kalim, the more minor holies, as it's called. You could eat it for two days and a night. So what are we talking about? Two days is uh, 24 plus 12 hours. We're talking about 36 hours in a hot climate with no refrigeration. There's a piece of meat on the table for 36 hours before it's consumed. And you'd imagine that it would go bad. It would spoil. Nevertheless, it never spoiled another miracle that was featured in the temple. The third miracle, there was never a fly in the butcher house, even though it's jam-packed with barbecues. And as anyone who knows who makes a barbecue, the flies are always swarming. There was a certain presence of holiness that warded off even the flies. And the fourth miracle, there was never a seminal omission for the Kohen Gadol, for the high priest, on Yom Kippur. What would happen if a Kohen Gadol had a seminal omission? well, then he would be disqualified from doing the work in the temple on Yom Kippur, which is really the day that he's needed most because he walks into the Holy of Holies and does all the work himself, essentially. And never once did the Kohen Gadol, in 800 plus years of the temple's uh, duration, never did he have a seminal mission that would have disqualified him. Why would it disqualify him? Because then he would need to go to the mikvah and wait till the day is over before he could walk back into the temple. And by that time, the kippur is already over. Now, if you study the Talmud, the book of Yoma, you see there's a major emphasis in the Yom Kippur service to avoid a seminal emission on the part of the Kohen Gadol. So, for example, once Yom Kippur begins, he's not allowed to sleep. And the whole night, waiting for the morning... He's kept up. And the Talmud talks about all the tricks that they would use to stave off sleep. They tell him stories that are interesting. They'd make noises to rouse him. If he gets a little bit uh, tired, they tell him to put his feet in the cold floor. Moreover, on the onset of Yom Kippur, as Yom Kippur is about to arrive, there's all the foods that they feed him, and they specifically feed him foods that are not likely to induce neither sleep nor arousal. Nevertheless, there was always a second Kohen Gadol. There was a relief pitcher in the bullpen, just in case the Kohen Gadol became disqualified for one reason or another. But never did they have to resort to plan B. The Kohen Gadol, the original one, was always pure, and never had a seminal mission that would have disqualified him from doing the work on Yom Kippur. Now, one of the commentaries asks an interesting question. Well, if the Kohen Gadol always performed the Yom Kippur service and he never was disqualified, why must you have a backup? Why do we have a vice Kohen Gadol just in case the original Kohen Gadol becomes disqualified? Well, if it never happened, why do we need to have a plan B? And the answer, he says, an interesting idea is that even when miracles are expected and they happen, we must behave as if the miracles are not going to happen. We cannot rely on a miracle because the second you begin to rely on a miracle and to assume it's going to happen, that makes it less likely to actually happen. 
Now, I did see an amazing piece here on this particular miracle that the Kohen Gadol never experienced a seminal mission. I saw an amazing piece by the Chassid Yaivetz, one of the preeminent commentaries on the book of Ethics of Our Fathers. He asks the following question. He says, wait a minute. Why would we think that the Kohen Gadol would have a seminal mission on Yom Kippur? We do all these safety measures to prevent it from happening, and he doesn't go to sleep, etc. And consequently, you would never even think this should happen. And he gives an amazing answer. He says that there are two forces operating within us. We have the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir Hara. Good inclination and bad inclination. And there is a rule that whenever one side is about to win, the other side gets a second wind and is able to fight back. And he gives an example. He says when a, when a candle is about to be extinguished, it has like a second wind. It's, it's like brightest, so to speak, before it goes completely dark. It's like it's darkest before dawn kind of thing. And he gives another example. He says sometimes people, when they're actually dying, about to die, they get tremendous strength. Normally, they get weaker and more feeble and more feeble and more weak. But as they're about to expire, they get a tremendous infusion of strength to be able to kind of balance the two, so to speak. As one side's about to win, the other side gets a rush, so to speak, of power. Similarly, here, there is about to be this absolute zenith of holiness. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day of purity, the day of forgiveness, the Kohen Gadol, the Holy of Holies... At this particular juncture of the year, that's when the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, is going to have this, so to speak, infusion of power. And therefore, actually, this is a great miracle because under normal circumstances, when there's such tremendous and potent holiness, invariably, there's going to be extra boost and extra oomph given to the other side. So we have this this time of the year. And we have this place, the temple, the Holy of Holies. And we have this person, the Kohen Gadol. This constellation of realities that come together in Yom Kippur, that is actually fertile breeding grounds where the Yetzirah is actually swarming and empowered. And therefore, it's a great miracle that he was never allowed to triumph over the Kohen Gadol. Our sages tell us that the Jewish people did the sin of the golden calf at the time where the Almighty was giving the tablets to Moshe. And of course, you know the story, the book of Exodus, Moshe goes up to heaven and says, I'll be back in 40 days. The people count 40 days, but really it's only 39 days because it's got to be 40 complete days. And they're waiting for him and they're freaking out. He's not coming down. We must make a replacement and they make a golden calf. Where precisely was Moshe at the time where the Jewish people below were making the golden calf? So the Talmud tells us that the tablets 
they were six tfachim long. They were six hand breaths long. And precisely at the moment where the Almighty was handing over the tablets to Moshe, and the tablets were two tfachim, two hands breaths in God's hands, and two in Moshe's hands, so it was almost like a, like a crossover moment, and two in the middle, and precisely then, it wasn't in God's hand, it wasn't in Moshe's hands, it was in both of their hands, and the transfer was happening right then and there, that's when the Jewish people did this in the golden calf. And the Talmud goes on to say that the Almighty says, wait a minute, I want to take it back. The Jewish people have sinned. They can't get the tablets anymore. And Moshe starts pulling it towards him. And there's a tug of war. And says the Talmud, Moshe won. And that's why the very last verse of the Torah, which it's when it's lauding Moshe, it's giving the eulogy of Moshe. It says, Ulchal hazaka, the strong hand that Moshe had. It's referring to when Moshe, so to speak, in this tug of war, was able to overpower God with his strong hands and pull the tablets to him. Which is just a very perplexing from a theological perspective, teaching the Talmud that Moshe is able to triumph over God, whatever that means. But the Maharal says that the Jewish people could have only done the sin of the golden calf only when they were at their absolute peak of holiness. And the peak of holiness is not when God is planning on giving the tablets to the Jewish people, not when God has already given the tablets to the Jewish people, but at the precise moment where there's this touch point of heaven and earth, of God to Moshe, and the Almighty is holding the tablets, and Moshe is holding the tablets, and there's some part in the middle where there's, there's this transfer, that's when the Jewish people reached the peak, that's when they did the worst sin. Because only when they were at their peak could the eight Sahara have corrupted them to do something so egregious and nefarious. Similar idea to what we see over here. The Kohen Gadol, on Yom Kippur, in the temple, holy of holies, Yetzirah is really swarming, and it is indeed a great miracle that the Yetzirah never won, of course, notwithstanding the fact that the system was designed to try to avoid that as best as possible. The next miracle is that there was no impurity found in the Shtehalechem, in the Omer, in the Lechem upon him. The Omer offering the two loaves of Shavuos and the showbreads we did every week. The commentaries point out that these in particular had no backup. There was no backup plan. In the event that this would become impure, the mitzvah evaporated. And the reason is that the Omer, it would have to be cut, the barley would have to be cut beforehand, and they wouldn't cut enough to have a backup plan. So if the barley became impure, that's it, you missed the mitzvah for this year. And the shteyalechem, the two loaves that were baked for Shavuos were baked before the festival, and you can no longer bake once the festival began, once the festival began, and therefore, if it became impure, it would be forever lost. And similarly, the lechem upon him, the showbreads was baked before Shabbos and you would not be able to bake it on Shabbos. And it's an amazing thing. We have offerings that if they become impure, they will be disqualified and we will lose that mitzvah. And in 800 years, it never happened even once. 
wrapping up the miracles, you have the altar, which is outside. There's the inner altar, which is in the sanctuary. And then you have the outer altar in the courtyard. And on top of the outer altar, there's fires. There's pyres, actually, as they're called. And we're told that these fires must be maintained at all times. But it is exposed to the elements. And what if there is a gale or there is a huge storm? And you can imagine if there's torrents of rain coming down on the fire atop the altar, invariably it would get extinguished. But it never happened even once. 800 years, the fire was perpetually maintained atop the altar. Similarly, the the pillar of smoke would not be moved by the wind and everyone standing together in close proximity. Yet when they bow down before God, everyone has plenty of space. And when they went to the temple, when the annual pilgrimage happened, there was never attached by wild animals, not by snakes, not by scorpions. And Jerusalem was big enough to accommodate whoever showed up. Now, it's interesting, the commentaries note that there is this concentric realms of holiness in the land of Israel. You have the land of Israel in general, the whole land, and then you have the city of Jerusalem, which is accorded a higher degree of holiness and sanctity. And then you have the temple grounds itself, which is a concentric place within the city of Jerusalem where there's even more holiness. And then even within the temple, you have the Holy of Holies, which is a higher level of holiness. And the commentaries note that all four of these realms have a similar degree of miracle. Namely, that there's more room in it than you would expect. So the Talmud tells us that the land of Israel is called Eretz Hatzvi, the land of the deer. What does that mean? It explains the Talmud that if you take a deer and you skin it and you remove the hide and then you try to wrap the hide back around the body, you'll find that it'll never fit. You'll never be able to actually get it to fit all the way around. It's almost like you buy one of those mattresses. You buy a mattress that's in a box, a small little box. You'll never get it back into the box. You'll never be able to return it to Costco. Sorry. It's not going to happen. Why? Because it's compacted so much and there's no way you can get it back in the box. Similarly, the land of Israel and the dimension, so to speak, there's so much stuff in there, you can't figure out how it all fits. It's almost like a deer. That's the land of Israel, the most outer concentric realm. And in the city of Jerusalem, here we read in our Mishnah, there's room for everyone. And there was never a time where someone said, I'm sorry, I'm at, we're out of place. You have to go to the neighboring city to find a place to stay. There's always room in Jerusalem. There's always another cot. There's always another couch. There's always another bed. There's always a place to park your tent. There's always room for another Jew in the city of Jerusalem. And then the temple grounds, as you go further in, in this concentric holiness, Temple grounds, everyone stands really compacted. Everyone is squished together. Everyone's crowded together. 
and it's time to bow down before God. And before you know it, there's more room than you anticipate. And finally, in the Holy of Holies, there was a miracle that the Ark did not take up any space. If you measured the Holy of Holies without the Ark, and then you measured it with the Ark inside of it, and you measured, and you measured from either side of the Ark to the wall, and then you would add that together, it turns out that the Holy of Holies, when it's empty, and the Holy of Holies, even once there is an Ark inside of it, and you measure from either side of the Ark to the wall, they're exactly the same size. The same idea that things inside these places of holiness don't take up any space. So this is a really nice and beautiful Mishnah. Talked about all these miracles that happened in the past. So I think there's a few questions that we must ponder to try to understand and unlock this Mishnah. So first of all, the question is, why? Why were there miracles ever present in the temple? What does it signify? What does it teach us about what the temple stands for? Number one. Number two, we haven't had a temple in, what, almost 2,000 years? 1950 years or so? 51 maybe, to be precise? That's a long time. And we're reading this now in the 2020s. What is the lesson for us? Moreover, these miracles, if you read the beginning of the Mishnah, the beginning of the Mishnah says there were 10 miracles done to our ancestors in the temple. A lot of them have nothing to do with our ancestors. They have to do with the temple itself and its sanctity. So what are the human, so to speak, miracles, not just the miracles that were done for the, for the edifice, for the place, for the aura of the temple. What does this have to do with us? So I want to say one deep point and then one very valuable string of lessons. And this is an idea that a lot of the commentaries share on this particular Mishnah. What is nature? What are the themes that are to be anticipated? What should you expect from this world? So we look at Genesis and we look at creation and at the conclusion of creation, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was exceedingly good. The way the Almighty intended creation to be was such that everything was good. Everything was good. In that idealized, utopian, idyllic state, there is no bad. Everything is good. All the things that we describe in this Mishnah are all things that you would expect that wouldn't be classified as miracles. But what happened? Adam did his sin And some of the things that were good and natural and expected became miracles. There is one place in the world where Adam's sin has no influence. 
where nature is the way it was intended, the Almighty saw everything he made, and behold, it was exceedingly good. There was one place where the things that we view as miracles were natural. And that is the temple. The temple is a little oasis in the world wherein the sin of Adam has no effect and the things are the way they were supposed to be if not for the sin of Adam. The commentaries point out that the story of Hanukkah is the restoration and rededication of the temple. And what happened? There was a little vial of oil intended to last for one night, and miraculously, it lasted for eight nights. And the commentaries say that the real underpinning of that particular miracle was the fact that the rededication of the temple was complete to the degree that miracles became natural and expected and anticipated because the temple, when it is operating as it ought to operate, is a place where miracles are ever-present and expected. So what really happened in Hanukkah was the fact that the temple went to standard operating realities. And that's the lesson over here, or that's the overarching idea in this Mishnah, that there is one place in the world where Adam's sin has no effect, and that's the temple. And that's why there were all these ever-present miracles outside the temple because they're a miracle. Inside the temple, it's just that the Almighty created the world to be really, really good and nothing bad. And therefore, there's room for everyone and things don't spoil and no one has any ill effects from the sacrifices. Things are wonderful because that's the way they're supposed to be. So that's the overall idea that I wanted to share. But on a more practical level, there is a beautiful interpretation by the Ruach Chaim. Ruach Chaim is one of the books that we use on Pirkei Avos, on Chapters of the Fathers, written by the great Rabbi Chaim Volozhener. And he has an exquisite piece on this particular Mishnah. And he says that the temple is there to show us what we ought to do in life. It's to kind of pave the path for us to be able to maximize our potential and become great. And he says that these specific miracles are there to show us that in the event that we behave as the Almighty instructs us to behave, we will lose nothing and gain everything. A person should not say, for example, oh, if I study Torah, it's going to make me weak. I'll become feeble. I'll die. I'll have all these injuries. Don't you know the Torah weakens your body? Is that a legitimate claim? The Talmud, after all, says that Torah does weaken your body. So how could someone say, hey, I'll study Torah and I won't be weak? Well, the Talmud says you will be weak. Here's the idea. What this means is you have have a teaching that tells us 
that no woman ever had a miscarriage because of the sacrifices in the temple. Meaning, a woman perhaps did have a craving, but that never resulted in anything fatal or lasting. And that's to tell us that in the event that we fulfill the will of the Almighty, we'll suffer no ill physical effects. And the second miracle is there to tell us that there is a certain putrid reality that happens to a person when they sin. Now, with our human and physical senses, we cannot pick up on the corruption and spoiling, so to speak, of of humanity. A person is a sin, their soul is blemished, and their persona, their stature as a person is damaged. But with physical tools, we can't pick up on that. It's only once the soul is removed from the body and is brought to a spiritual reality, a spiritual world, only then do the spiritual maladies bubble to the surface. And here we're told that in the temple, i.e., when the Jewish people are doing what is demanded of them, what is instructed to them, what is incumbent upon them, there's not going to be any putridness, any spoiling, they will remain clean and fresh and unblemished. The Talmud tells us that a fly is symbolic of the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah is described in many different ways in the Talmud. One of the ways the Talmud tells us, the book of Brachas, page 61a, Yetzirah domel is vuv. The Yetzirah is comparable to a fly. When it says that there's no flies in the temple, it means that someone who does what is required of them, they will be clean of flies of the Yetzirah, the built to stave off the Yetzirah. A seminal emission on Yom Kippur, could you imagine what that would cause to the Kohen Gadol? Oh, why is the vice Kohen Gadol doing the work on Yom Kippur? What happened to the original one? Oh, don't you know what happened? <laughs> don't you know what happened? He had a seminal emission. Can you imagine the entire nation snickering about that? What shame that would cause to the holiest man, ostensibly, allegedly, of the people? In the event that the Jewish people embody what the Almighty requires of us, they will be free of all these things. They'll have good health. They'll live a long life. They will not be corrupted, become putrid for all above for the world to come, for the afterlife. They won't have the influence of the Yetzirah, and they won't have any shame. And the rain falling down on the altar, the Ruachim points out that there could have been a very different miracle, right? The Mishnah says that the rain did not extinguish the fire. There could have been a different miracle. What's the other miracle that could have been featured in the temple? There was no rain. Wouldn't that be a nice little miracle? There was no rain. The rain just diverted away from the temple grounds. But that's not what actually happened. There was rain. 
but the rain nevertheless did not impinge upon the fire of the temple. What this means is that when a person has manifold responsibilities, there's the fire of Torah, and there's the rain of trying to make a livelihood, and you would think that you really have to choose one or the other, because after all, if you have to make a living, you're busy with that, you're consumed with that. How could you have the fire of Torah burning brightly? In the event that the Jewish people are doing what is expected upon us, we will have the rain and we will have the fire and those two will not affect each other. You could have both. It's possible to have your cake and eat it too, to have your rain and have your fire, to have your Torah and still make a dignified living. The wind did not affect the pillar of smoke. He explains that the wind is a reference to the Sahara, and a person who has a commitment to study with assiduousness, with diligence, no influence of the will sweep away their commitment. There will be no disqualification in the Omer, in these various offerings. He says that's a reference to a person who is indeed making a nice livelihood to make sure that it is free of any contaminants, to make sure that it is free of any chicanery. You stand close, packed together, but when you bow down, there is plenty of room. So he has a play in words on this. He says, if you stand tall and erect and prideful and arrogant, then you'll be constricted. But if you bow down and submit yourself to God, then there'll be plenty of freedom for you. And the word that the Mishnah uses to describe plenty of room, revachim, also means prophets. You'll be able to have prophets as well. When you submit yourself to God, your prophets will increase. And of course, the snake has lots of different implications in Jewish philosophy, but the way he describes it is that the snake is symbolic of the Yitzhara, of the original serpent. And when someone makes a mistake, they have two choices. On one hand, they could repent, they could rectify, they could fix the blemish, or they can allow it to linger. And once it lingers then the snake comes and bites and kills. And the way he explains it, you go to the temple and you do a sin, God forbid. You did a sin, we're humans, right? You made a sin. But what happens the next day? There are sacrifices brought in the morning and those sacrifices provide atonement. And you wake up the next day and you have been cleansed of all your misdeeds. So, What this is describing is when things do go wrong, the idealized version of our people have a penchant for repentance and the snake never injures us, not because a snake is not created, so to speak, not because we don't sin, because once we do sin, we are able to repent. And finally, no person will say I have no room. No one will influence or encroach upon their fellow's livelihood.
meaning you won't have a problem where someone else will come and take away your your livelihood, your way to make uh, a living. So what he's describing over here is that this Mishnah, of course, it's a reference to miracles that happened in the temple, but it's also very valuable lessons and life advice for us that the temple itself is emblematic of the way things ought to be, of what we should aspire to become as individuals. And these miracles are, in effect, they are promises to us. In the event that we do maintain our tenacity and commitment to God and subjugation to God and willingness to repent when we make a blunder and commitment and diligence in Torah study, in that event, the Almighty will clear away all the inhibitions and all the obstacles in our path and we could have everything. We could have the spiritual, we could have the physical and material. We can live the life that the Almighty intends for us to have. I thank you all for listening. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to send me an email with a question, with a comment, with feedback of any sort.